it'll be good to have an athlete on. Yeah. So, so awesome. You know, because I'm a former. Oh, my God. I'm a former athlete. Yeah. I hate to break it to you, but I don't think it was this caliber. It was close. (laughs) (laughs) It was close. Listen, high school football counts. You're literally comparing (laughs) high school football to the Paralympics where you are competing (laughs) with the world. Well, I, I'm just saying on a competitive nature. Like, you're competing nature. with the town. We have the same competitive... He's competing with the world. <laughs> we were the best team in the town. because The there were town. Two, yeah, there were two high schools. We were the best. The town. Not yeah. even the state. No, we weren't. We didn't. Do you hear yourself? <laughs> I just know what it's like to be this competitive. Oh. Because <laughs> I, too, am an, am an athlete. Yeah. I'll world, give you the athlete, not world, not world. Not world class. But I made it to the JI Invitational when I was when I did track my freshman year. I mean, you are pulling at straws right now. I could high jump with the best of them. Oh, my Lord. What? I do wonder sometimes. Like, uh, what? Not all of us could uh, play for an all-American soccer team like you. That's true. But I do wonder what goes on in your head sometimes. Like... What? You know that movie Inside Out? Yeah. With all the people in their heads? Yeah. Like, I wonder who wins in yours all the time. I don't know, but I feel like one of them is a guy who wears, like, a Letterman jacket. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's your glory days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's we'll the... call him that. But I don't talk about that much. Oh, <laughs> Lord. You joking. I don't you... talk about it that much because I don't remember all of it. Because I had a lot of concussions. You don't talk about your... Oh my, wow. Okay. You just don't, you don't know what it's like to be a high school (laughs) star, star. That's your glory days guy talking right now. (laughs) You're listening to Get Found Recovery, the podcast. Hey everybody, it's Lindsay and Adam. How are you? We took a little hiatus, I think in March, so Life got a little busy, so we are back in full swing and no better way to come back than with our guest today, who I'm really excited to talk to, Mike Shea. I've had the pleasure to hang with him in the past, and he is not only a two-time Paralympian for Team USA, a silver medalist at the 2014 Sochi Games, a world champion for snowboarding, an SB nominee for Best Male Athlete with a Disability, a motivational speaker, and an all-around awesome guy. So Mike achieved all these accolades after losing his leg in a wakeboarding accident. And in addition to that, he also had to tackle his addiction to drug and alcohol in the wake of his accident. Mike, there's so much to cover. There's so much to talk about. I'm so excited you're here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You guys make me sound so much cooler with that introduction. That's for sure. Woo, it's, <laughs> but it's all true. I know it's such a... And, and you left out, uh, she showed me that you do woodworking and yeah. uh, the stuff you make is just totally incredible. So she left that out too. I mean, there's so many, there's so many layers to your story, right? And there's so many, what we love about this and our podcast at Get Found Recovery is we love to talk about recovery. It just, it seems like with your story, you've had to recover several times, right? And I'm hoping within this hour, we can get to the whole thing. But I wanted to start at kind of the beginning of it. Can you take us back to the accident and what that did and how that kind of started to change and evolve and create kind of your story? 
Yeah, I mean, that that technically was kind of the turning point in my life. Uh, I was 19 at the time. Um, I was in a continuation school and kind of not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Things were pretty hectic. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd, kind of wasting life away. Of course, I was very naive at that time in my life. And uh, just as we did every afternoon after we got out of school, we would take the boat out to our local lake. We lived probably about a mile or two from Lake Castaic. And, um, you know, that day, we, just like any other day, I was on sitting on the railing of the boat and we were just kind of cruising along the other on, on the water, the other side of the lake because it was pretty choppy uh, and we were wakeboarding. We I remember hitting sort of a cross wake and it caught me by surprise. It was a total just instantaneous thing and it threw me overboard. Uh, and when I had gone into the water, I thought no big deal. I just had fallen into the water, but I felt something kind of wrapped around my leg, part of my arm and the top of my neck. And in an instant, I sort of realized, oh shoot, that's the ski rope. And we were just wakeboarding that ski ropes attached to the boat. And as soon as I thought that I felt it tense up around my arm and it sort of unraveled from that point because it was still attached to the boat and by the time he had a chance to let off the throttle of course there's no brakes on a boat and the pressure from that and the um the force of that around my ankle it tightened up around my ankle sliced through the back of my arm and completely severed it just below the knee so it was a total freak thing that happened in a complete instant uh, i remember getting to the top of the water and sort of just screaming to my friends hey come get me i think i might have dislocated my ankle because i really didn't know how bad it was i thought Maybe I just dislocated something. I was having problems sort of treading water. And uh, as soon as they came around, of course, they were kind of laughing because it was they thought it was funny. Oh, we yeah. Anytime a buddy falls off a boat is funny. Totally. Yeah, exactly. So and I was kind of laughing, too. It's funny how shock works, because little did I know it was extremely bad. And as soon as I got up onto the swim deck, which is the back of the boat, before I even pulled my leg out of the water, I noticed that the water was red. <sighs> like, <sighs> like Jaws style. Yeah. And uh, I thought, oh, no, and I pulled it out and it was just completely mangled. Um, and oddly enough, it was a clean cut, you know, like a butcher knife had gone right through it because the rope had had burned and cauterized right through all the tissue, muscles and nerves down to the bone uh, very cleanly. So um, my friends grabbed a towel. They uh, luckily had the knowledge to wrap it around just my upper ankle like a tourniquet, tighten it up real good. And then they rushed me back to the dock. So it was a pretty freak accident, but, you know, it changed my life forever. So the the rope and sorry for being naive. So the rope completely went through your entire skin right down to the bone or it, it, it went through the bone too, all the way down to the bone. Um, and then it was sort of like just above the ankle joint where the joint meets the um, tibular fibula or no, uh, one of those bones there that that dislocated as well. So when wow. it had gone all the way through to the bone, it also dislocated. And then the only thing attached was the Achilles tendon which is almost like a bungee cord. So yeah. when everything was released, the tendon was sort of just like the only thing that was left sort of hanging oh on. God. So, you know, the best that I, I could do is just sort of like, as gross as it may sound, slap it back on there and wrap it up. And yeah. just, so when you get to the hospital, at what point were they like, we need to take your leg? It was funny because um, I knew as soon as after seeing it, that that thing was not going to be saved right away. But I would get these looks from doctors and nurses like, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, we're mm. going to be able to save it. And like deep down inside, I always knew. Um, I had gone uh, to our local emergency room. The doctor came out and he took a good look at it. And he said, we're going to need to find you a surgeon. There's nobody here who can operate on that or can do specific amputations. So you're going to have to go to uh, U USC or UCLA. Um, and at the time, I think there was a bomb threat at one of the hospitals and they had everything all closed down. And um, there was a bunch of traffic, obviously it takes hours to get from where I live to um, LA in traffic. 
So they had to airlift me. And um, I sat in the waiting room before being airlifted for almost eight hours, just with my wound completely wrapped, like on pain medication before they even airlifted me to the University of uh, California. And you said that when you got on the boat and you noticed the injury, you said it's, it's gone, you know, even before a doctor or nurse told you that it's, it's bad. Do you think in your head you were preparing yourself for the worst? Totally. I mean, that's sort of what I do anyways. It's catastrophizing everything, you know, making everything seem like it's worse than it is because when it does happen, then I'm not let down by it. So I absolutely, I think um, that's probably what I was doing. And, and, uh, but I knew, you know, looking at it, it was, it was bad. So what was it like, you know, once you get to the hospital where they were doing surgery after waking up and realizing what, what is that like? What are those emotions like? Yeah, it was, uh, I remember it pretty vividly because it's a memory I really hung on to, uh, waking up in the intensive care room. Um, and it's this big glass room. So it's this dreamy feeling when you wake up in this strange room and, you know, your family's on the other side of the glass doors. Uh, and the doctor comes in and I remember the first thing that I did was look down at my legs to see if they had amputated. And I could see that the bed sheet sort of was not moving up over my left toes where it was over my right. And that's sort of how I knew, mm. um, doctor came in immediately and said, you know, we had to amputate. Um, you're going to be able to live a pretty uh, fulfilled life. Uh, you may not be able to do the sports that you used to be able to do. Um, it's just sort of gave me the whole rundown. And, um, at the time I sort of took him at face value and thought, you know, maybe I'm never going to be able to do those things again, because I didn't really have a knowledge of what was possible. Right. I didn't know any other amputees. I didn't know the prosthetic equipment out there. Um, so it was a lot of trial and error for me, but you know, in that moment, I, I didn't feel like a tremendous loss yet because it was sort of this delayed reaction to how I was dealing with the loss of my leg emotionally. And I put on this like big fake smile and I was of course on pain medication. So I was a happy camper. And mm -hmm. um, I think that was a part of a lot of why I didn't deal with those feelings immediately. So people, when people say, did you feel like just completely destroyed afterwards? Were you like really down and out? And honestly, I wasn't. Right. Well, it's a lot to process, right? At 19 years old, I don't even know if you have the brain power at that age to process something like that, right? There's no handbook to help you. And like you said, you didn't know anybody else that had gone through this. So I could imagine just, just going through, right. Going through the motions, not actually processing it. What yeah, year, it. It's just, it's sorry. What year was it that you lost the leg? 2002. All right. So, I mean, there really wasn't, um, these new prosthetics that help people kind of maneuver better, right? It was just kind of a standard prosthetic at that point. Technology hadn't really come along. So it was a little different. So doctors probably had a different outlook back then than they do today when someone loses, loses a, a limb. Oh, 100%. And that was right at the beginning of when uh, developments in technology with prosthetic equipment started happening. Because it was right after 9-11, right after we went to war. And, and uh, soldiers were coming back uh, with injuries. And that's when they really developed a lot of new prosthetic equipment because it, there was a more wide range of people who had uh, amputations. So uh, that was right at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So we're talking about you processing this, you're on pain pills and, you know, you're coming out of the hospital and you're trying to get back into what life is going to be like now. Right. So, so what does it look like when you're coming home and you're, learning how to do things kind of all over again, right? Getting a prosthetic and figuring out what 
you know, getting up in the morning looks like taking a shower looks like what, what is going through your head in all of that? Yeah. It's a whole new way of life. Um, and it just completely changes everything. Um, how you shower, you know, how you take, you know, I took a bath for a while because you're really bouncing in, in the shower, slippery shower is like one of the most dangerous things you can do as an amputee. Um, how you sleep when you get up in the morning, you know, you can't just get up and, you know, walk, you got to put your leg on and that can be a little bit time consuming. So it changes, I mean, not a ton, but it, it, it changes a lot in your life as soon as you become an amputee that you, I don't think you really realize until it happens to you. So I'm sure you know, you, you lose this leg and you have all this family support. You have all this friend support and everyone's cheering you on, checking on you. It starts to go away after a while, I'm assuming, right? Friends stop with the calling or the text and and things like that. And you're kind of left on an Island to yourself. Is that when uh, you started to get into the medication a little more or the drinking a little more? Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the, I've always had the great family support. That's one thing I must say about my family. They've always been there for me 100% of the way. And so that was great to be able to have that. But I did notice, like you said, um, that's a time in your life when you really realize who's there for you uh, from a friendship standpoint. Um, and a lot of them were sort of weeded out during that process. You know, they were there for me right after the incident in the hospital and that sort of disappeared. And there yeah. were very few people that were left there in my support team. And prior to my accident, to speak to my addiction, uh, I, it was always there. It wasn't something that I think started when I had my amputation uh, at a young age, 14, 15 years old, um, with alcohol. I'm um, getting blackout drunk at parties, you know, at a very young age is when it really started. But it's not something that I think I really, really affected my life uh, negatively until I was an amputee and the pain medication was introduced. Um, I think just because it's a totally different aspect of addiction for me. Um, it, it was just a full-time thing. You know, you're taking pills all day long and it's very easy to get it, especially as an amputee. All I have to do is go to the doctor and say, I'm in a little bit of pain. And they're like, well, he lost his leg for Christ's sake. Of course he's in pain. So here's a bunch of medication. Um, well, and, and sadly, they were giving out uh, pain meds in 2001, 2002, like it was Tic Tacs. Candy, yeah, for sure. For sure. Anything you wanted. And oxycodone was really big at the time. And so that's what I was prescribed. Um, and of course, in the beginning, I did have pain, um, just, just as anybody who is an amputee probably would. But, you know, that pain only lasts for so long. And if you do the proper therapy and, you know, you get up and you exercise and get out, which is what I was kind of doing at that time, that pain subsides. But the addiction uh, physically to the medication is sort of still there. And it doesn't take very long, you know, a couple of weeks, if that, before your body starts to become dependent on what it is that you're taking. And with the addiction component that I had prior to my, my accident, it sort of just manifested itself in that way where I wanted more and more and more of the medication uh, to the point where I was running through my prescriptions faster. And then my doctor wasn't wanting to give me more. And then I did the whole doctor shopping thing where I would go to different doctors because they didn't know what I was on. And, and it just became this, like this nightmare where it completely took a hold of my life. And being an amputee was actually now the, secondary part of my life and addiction sort of just took over. And, and it's weird too, because at 15 years old, you start drinking, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I, my DLC is alcohol. And um, when I was 19 years old and I started on drinking, I was like, well, I can't have a problem. I don't have gray hair. I'm not 60 years old. I don't have a red face like this. I'm just experimenting. I just enjoy being drunk every night, you know? Um, so to be 15 and be going through that and realizing that you have kind of an issue or had an issue back then, it's got, it's gotta be strange. 
Yeah, totally. And I don't think I realized it until much later in my life that there was an issue back then. But because, you know, when you're young and especially where I live and everybody partying and your mentality is like, well, everybody does it. So I'm not really the outcast. But then when I get older and I look back, I'm like, well, everybody wasn't blackout drunk on the gas for, you know, the whole night. Everybody wasn't spilling, getting yelled at for spilling liquor all over people's houses or like, you know, drinking and driving or getting DUIs. So obviously there was an issue back then that I wasn't really recognizing. Recognize it now, but definitely not at the time. So at what point, um, when you're taking your pills, at what point in, in this, did you say, holy shit, I have a problem and I need help. Did that happen or did somebody call you out on it? Um, unfortunately it was years after my amputation that, uh, people really started realizing that I was pretty good. And especially with pills, because you're not loopy, you're not like, you know, acting super strange. The only thing that really happens to you is you get a little hyper and talkative. Um, mm-hmm. and people who are other pill addicts may, might notice that, but to me, I was just a productive human being in society, but little did they know that I was struggling internally with physical withdrawal and, um, uh, self-medicating with the, this medication. And so for me, I noticed it, you know, a couple of months after like, Oh shoot, this is a problem. I was able to like sort of hide that from people for a very long time until it started becoming more of a problem when I wasn't able to hold a regular job or do normal things because I was always needing to get more money or more medication or go to doctors. And that sort of just sort of overtook my life in a tremendous way. And then when you're mixing that with alcohol, it just sort of intensified everything. So it took some time, but happened pretty quickly for me to realize that. Yeah. And you went to treatment, right? Right. About, you know, just saying I need help. Yeah. I I ended up going to treatment. Um, Like I said, once it got really, really bad to where I was drinking and doing the medication, um, my family obviously knew that there was a problem. And I think, you know, back then my mom really didn't know that she was a little bit of an enabler Mm -hmm. and she cares a lot about me and she only wanted to help me. And she saw that I was going through physical withdrawals. So she would help me sometimes like, Oh, you need to get medication. Like we need to get you medication. And I don't think she realized that that was just kind of feeding the beast. All she was trying to do is not see her son in pain. Um, and so she started going to, I think these Al-Anon groups where she really learned about how she can prevent herself from doing that to, uh, sort of enable me and help me. And then I started sort of pulling away from my family and getting into, you know, worse things and getting into more trouble. And I got my DUI. And um, I think at that point I realized that I didn't have any friends left around me. Right. Nobody really wanted to hang out with me. Um, my, my parents had pretty much said, you know what, unless you're planning to get help, we can't really help at all. Uh, right. We don't want to have our, our hand in it. And that's when I really realized that I've got to do something to fix this. So I remember being, super drunk one night to the point where I, I couldn't even stand up. And my uh, uh, girl, a girlfriend at the time, she had driven me home and she said, you need to go talk to your, your parents. This is ridiculous. I'm not dealing with this anymore. And I walked inside and my mom looked me dead in the eye and you get that stare from your parents. And especially when you're really drunk like that, she said, what are you doing with your life? This is just absolutely ridiculous. You need to do something to change this. Get in the car right now and we're going to take you to treatment. And I remember just breaking down crying. Like that was the moment where it was all like, what the heck am I doing? Like, this has got to change. So she drove me to um, the facility down in uh, Tarzana, which unfortunately was a court ordered program instead of a normal treatment center. I think that's what the insurance would cover at that time. But a court order program, everyone that's there really doesn't want to be there. Doesn't really. want to be there. Right. right. So it was not the best treatment facility for me, but it gave me gave me some tools getting out of there. I sort of knew now what addiction was about. 
But of course, I relapsed right away and was trying more things than I tried before because I learned a lot more from the program on, of other addicts and how they would take pills or how they would do things. And, and that's, it's just made my addiction worse getting out. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I, I went to a treatment center too. And you think everyone's there for the same kind of goal and that's to get sober. But they're there because they don't want their girlfriend to break up with them or their wife to leave them or, you know, to have their kids or custody battle. I mean, there was even an incident where people were sneaking drugs into the premises after a court date. And it's just like it blows me away that people are doing this, but we're in a recovery center. I know it's almost worse sometimes in certain recovery centers with the stuff that's going on as opposed to you being in an outside environment because you're with everybody who's gone through the same thing and everybody who's lied, cheated and stealed to get their way through life and their to fuel their addiction is all in the same place. And so it sort of just fuels itself. But uh, you know, if, if you're in a productive facility where people are uh, really trying to help each other, which the second place that I go into uh, was that for me, then it, it, it helped a lot. Yeah, yeah, we had a sorry, we had a motivational not to cut you off. <laughs> we had a motivational speaker that had the entire facility there. And she's like, you guys don't realize this, but I am sitting in a room with the most manipulative people on the face of this earth who could probably do so much good in this world and is using their powers for for evil. So no, I was going to say I, I resonate with your mom, right? Because that moment I had that with Adam of just looking at him and being like, we're done. Like you need help. And you saying, you said, Oh my God, like, what am I doing? Adam had that moment too. Cause I was expecting him to fight me on it about, you know, cause we had to go to the hospital with Adam treatment. Wasn't our next step at that point. Um, but I was expecting a full on fight and he didn't fight me. He kind of, I feel in that moment, he had given up the fight a bit too. And was just like, okay. I think he like, didn't want he didn't want me to give him an uh, an ultimatum it was this is what's happening and you're gonna do it and he went and i was still i was even now it still baffles me how much you fought me for everything and then that moment you just didn't fight me i think we're so exhausted towards the end regardless of what stage you're at in in your addiction when it's time it's time and i i think you're just so exhausted that when someone says it you're you're just finally, there's that piece of you that's just like, all right, good. Okay. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. I'm just too yeah. exhausted to be doing this anymore. So, yeah. And subconsciously, I feel like we have a lot of guilt around what we're doing, anyways. And so when we see it and hear it from somebody else, it sort of just resonates with us. And, you know, like subconsciously waiting for somebody to just reach out and save us. So, totally get that and understand that. Yeah. So, second treatment good come out you're you're feeling good you've got some good tools under your belt you're feeling like you can you know live a life in recovery tell us how you found snowboarding and the paralympics and how that all happened cuz i know you you were a snowboarder prior to your accident but how did you get from you know your amputation to the paralympics yeah it was a long journey um i got out of that treatment facility um it was actually a facility that uh, uh, dr drew pinsky uh, was, um, oh, nice. working at. and, uh, he was actually, uh, he was my, one of my, uh, psychiatrists I would see like once a week or whatever, but the program was amazing and they gave me so many tools. And that's when I really learned about the 12 step program and going to meetings and really just kind of turning my life over and realizing that this was something that I was going to live with for the rest of my life. And I needed to make a change in the daily routines and in my environment, if I really wanted to see that 
uh, impact my lifestyle. And so I got out of there and I just started like checking off the boxes, like who's in my life, who do I need to get out of my life? How can I make this environment a healthy place? You know, asking for forgiveness from all the people that I had really hurt over the years and just going through all the list of things that I needed to do to sort of relieve myself from all that built up pressure and stuff that I had all those years of everything that I had done to, to other people and family. And I started feeling a little bit better about myself. And of course you build confidence um, once you start to become sober for a little while. And, you know, a week had passed, a month had passed, still going to meetings. I started wanting to get involved in some of the things that I had done before and prior to my addiction. And one of those things was snowboarding. It's something I always loved to do. I'd always done extreme sports as a kid, you know, skateboarding, surfing, but snowboarding was something I always loved. Uh, so I started just going back up to my local mountain here, uh, Mountain High. Within a couple of months, I think I got a phone call from Amy Purdy, who uh, has Adaptive Action Sports, and she's a big cool. advocate. Yeah, big, big advocate for um, uh, uh, amputees who want to snowboard. And she had asked if I wanted to come up to a big snowboard camp that they had in Lake Tahoe, where there was going to be a couple amputees up there. And it was just going to be kind of a fun time for amputees to get together and snowboard. And I thought, why not? But at the time I had really bad social anxiety because after my addiction, I sort of like stopped learning how to be able to socialize with people without feeling like really anxious because that's what I had. So I, I had to really step outside my box there and I had a lot of fear about going, but I said, you know what, what the heck? And I drove all the way to Lake Tahoe. I didn't know a soul there, spent about five days there and it, it just completely sh- like shifted my life. And I saw that there were these other people who had gone through the same thing that I had gone through with my amputation. And we're talking about like, oh, how do you adjust your leg for this? And oh, you wake up in the morning, you know, how do you do this? And how do you put your sleeve on? And uh, what angles do you use? And it was like, wow, it's really great to be able to relate to these people on a level that I haven't been able to relate to. And so that's when I sort of just wanted to get more of that. And that feeling that I had when I came home from Lake Tahoe is just so great that I started snowboarding more and more and more. And um, that spring or that next spring, Amy called me again and God bless her. She has a program that helps so many athletes. And she said, we're running this program with the U.S. Nationals. It's out in Lake or in uh, Copper Mountain, Colorado, where we go out and we can actually compete. <clears throat> so I went out there and competed and did pretty well, I think, for my first time competing in the sport of border cross, because I'd always done a lot of freestyle events, but never really raced on a snowboard. So it was a little bit new for me, but fell in love with it completely. So that's sort of how it all started for me. And I just wanted more and more of it. And started snowboarding more and sort of just putting my life into that. How old were you at the time? Uh, let's see. I was 26, 27, I think when I uh, started doing that. All right. So seven years, seven, eight years after yeah. the, the accident. And it, is it the, the rush? Is it uh, right before the gate opens? Because you, you race, right? Mm-hmm. You're a mm-hmm. racer. So is it right before the gate opens where you get that adrenaline rush? Is it standing on a podium and getting a medal? Is it getting through the finish line first? Where is that kind of like uh, just adrenaline hit? Definitely before the gate drops. Yeah. Um, any athlete will tell you that before the gate drops, that's, I think, what really just like drives that feeling of just like, this is going to be awesome. And the fear and the excitement. And you learn how to channel that. And as soon as the gate drops, though, if you're a well-trained athlete and you've, you've done it enough, yeah, muscle memory sort of just takes over and the fear is gone. The excitement's gone. And now it's just like, it's game time. Yeah. Uh, so they call, they call it the zone, you know? So before the gate drops is really when you get that, like all that rush, which is, it's, it, it's a fix in itself. You know, like I, I love doing that. And is that what makes you, cause you're a world champion, right? Is that mm-hmm. what makes you better than most? Is that you're able to put yourself in that zone where other people can kind of lose that in between? 
I think so. I, I think uh, a lot of athletes will tell you that that's uh, a benefit to being able to be in that, that mindset. Um, and it's not something that is you're born naturally with, or some people are better at it's trained. Um, and so the more that you do that and the more that you're, you know, pulling out of the gate and racing against other people, the, the more your mind just starts to go on autopilot. And so the, that, that's sort of the benefit of, of training as often as we do is, is then you can get into that mindset and get into that zone. And, and that's the best place that you can be in a race for sure. It's so cool. Like you could just be like, yeah, I'm a world champion. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no biggie. Brush your shoulder. Yeah. No big deal. So how do you get picked? I mean, obviously you go on to win the, uh, this- world, the world championship and then you get picked to go to the Olympics. Yeah, it's uh, from that point on, I just started uh, competing and traveling. I moved my entire life from California out to uh, Winter Park, Colorado, uh, right when I was around 27-ish and started training full-time. Um, and at that point, the sport yet wasn't into the Paralympic Games. It was just a, a World Cup-level sport. Um, it wasn't recognized by the International Paralympic Committee as, a, as an actual sport, but that's sort Those of Those jerks. Yeah, what a bunch of uh, a-holes. But no, they, they, uh, they, in the beginning, sort of didn't really want I think to support us because we were snowboarders and the Paralympics is still a very old fashioned sort of organization or was it's now, it's now made a huge leap since then. Uh, But you know, 10 years ago, a decade ago, they still had this very old mindset. So when they, we wanted them to uh, look at snowboarding as an option for the games. Originally there was a lot of this politics that we had to go through and they they denied us originally. Um, wow. And we came back the following year and fought and fought and fought. And the more events that we had, the, they were looking at numbers, how many people we had snowboarding. Obviously, if there's only six guys and five girls, you know, internationally, they're going to be like, it's not worth it. So we had to really grow the sport. And social media was coming out at the time. So we were able to utilize and capitalize on that. And before we knew it, you know, it was it was an event where it was just a handful of uh, um, guys and girls that would come to for fun. Uh, it was now, you know, almost 100 people internationally that were all top level competitors uh, traveling to world cups and the IPC said, okay, we want you guys to be in the games. And uh, they told us about it and they said, we only have, I think it was like two years to, to train and compete at 2014, which would be Sochi uh, in uh, uh, Russia. So that was, that was it right there. I knew that we really had to put my nose to the grindstone and uh, winter park, Colorado. I trained every single day uh, on the snow in the gym um, to be on that team. And then that year is when they did the selection process for who can make the team. And you had to have so many World Cup uh, qualifications or, or placements on the podium for you to get that team. What was that like when you found out that they were making it a Olympic sport? That, that was huge. That honestly was more of an accomplishment than winning a medal because it was something that I was a part of, something much bigger that is helping people today and kids today who want to be say I want to be a Paralympic snowboarder that was amazing when we had put in all that hard work and years of you know all that stuff came out of my pocket at that time there were no sponsors you know there was no a national team that paid for all my hotels like all of my own travel to Europe and all of our competition fees gear everything came out of my pocket and so to be able to make that sacrifice and then have that return with this sport is now in the Paralympic Games and you're you and your peers are, are the reason for that was was huge for me that's such a, it's a really cool legacy yeah. that you can put your name on that you worked really oh, hard. Add that to the list of things. <laughs> I should have added does. that to my accolades <laughs> to talk about you. So talk about what was that moment? What was that moment like being in Sochi and competing for the first time in the Paralympic Games and standing on the podium? Yeah, that was the point in which I realized 
you know, everything I had gone through in the last decade of my life um, ended up being worth it for me because, you know, all, I mean, I had so many tough times, you know, days and nights where I would just cry myself to sleep because I felt like I was just hopeless and helpless. Like Mm. it wasn't going anywhere in my life. I couldn't really get out of this hole that I was in. And to be there in Sochi. And of course I had been sober for many years at that point. Um, so addiction really wasn't at the forefront of my mind, but I did remember all the suffering that I'd gone through in the years before that. And not just that, but all the people that had helped me get there because we don't really get to our success, you know, on our own. We really get there through the relationships that we have and, you know, my, my family and my coaches and the staff that had helped me get there. And I remember standing on the podium and we had swept the podium, the U S at that game. So it was, uh, two of my best friends stood up there with me. Uh, first, second, and third. And I remember just looking at them and then looking out and I saw my coaches and they were just like ecstatic. And my dad was in the front row and he sort of just had tears coming down his eyes. Mm. And that was when it all just like hit me. Like, yeah. This is powerful. Like just everything that I've gone through and all these people that have stuck by my side through this. And now I get to sort of enjoy this celebration. It was amazing. Even like two years ago, not knowing if you were even going to be able to go to the Olympics. And then all of a sudden they put the games in to sit there on the podium like that. I'm trying to put myself in that place. I can't do it's it. Pretty <laughs> it's pretty insane cool. and it's amazing. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, no, it was, it was cool. So you come home wearing your medal, which I've seen, by the way, when you came. <laughs> yeah, yes, you <laughs> it was awesome. Um, and, you know, it's heavy. It is. That's what everybody's the first when everybody picks up it's first thing they say, wow, this is heavy. heavy. Yeah. It's really heavy. So you come home and do you just automatically start training for the next? Like, do you get a minute to breathe? What does it look like? Uh, pretty much. Like I-, I was so on the high of winning that or getting silver at that games that I was like, all right, we're going for the next one. Like there was no break in between. It was, I came home, ran right to the gym, like started training. Uh, actually I moved to the Olympic training center right afterwards in Colorado Springs where we worked with some of the best uh, nutritionists and sports psychologists. And, That's awesome. Um, sort of just like stepped up my training from that point. So yeah, it was, it was right to it after that because I wanted to, you know, even better myself and prepare myself for the next games. What was the next game after that? Pyeongchang, South Korea. Okay. And you went and you did that, you participated in that as well? I did. I, comp- I participated in that as well. And um, that one didn't go as well for me. And I think that I had a lot of like kind of sort of weird mental things going into that where I was sort of a little overconfident and thought that I was going to do really well. Didn't realize that things could happen. And, you know, it, it, sometimes a race doesn't go your way. And it was sort of a little bit of a lesson for me because I had done so well for those few years before that I was living on this high that, you know, it's just another game. It's like, I'm going to do okay. And it, and when it didn't, it was like, Oh God, like I didn't end up on the podium. And some people might say, well, you still got fourth or fifth, but when you train four years of that life hard. to compete for two minutes on a course, it's a lot for an athlete to process. And so it was, it was tough for me. It was a tough loss, but I was happy for my teammates. Yeah. That, ca- that can't be easy because the Olympics to me is like the pinnacle of sports, right? You have to be the very best at what you do and you could be the very best on Saturday and you could be the very best on Sunday. And if your competition is on Monday and you have one slip up that could cost a podium, that's got, that's gotta be hard. I, I went to high school with a, with a, an Olympian who in archery and she was doing it when she was a little, little kid. Uh, every single day we'd see her, she'd be shooting that bow, shooting that bow. And she ended up going to the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And, you know, she 
didn't she didn't meddle. And I remember seeing her one day. She came home and she was just kind of walking up and down our street. She looked like she looked like someone took her, you know, her love away. And um, to train that hard for that, those two minutes, like you say, it's got to be hard once you come home. It's another part of recovery, right? Because now mentally, yeah, mentally, because now you come home and it's like, okay, I finished, I finished that. The lights and cameras have gone away. I'm back to just me and myself. Right now. What does life look like? Yeah. And every uh, Paralympic and Olympic athlete will tell you that uh, the day after the games, you wake up and you're in a funk. It's uh, lasts for days sometimes for some people, it lasts for months for other people. Some people, it never really goes away. Um, and honestly, that was a really hard moment for me coming home from the games because I knew that might have been my last games. I didn't know if I was going to compete again. I, my daughter uh, was going to be born that spring. So there was this just this big shift in my life. And I, I had this sense that I needed to sort of take responsibility to provide for my family, which snowboarding did okay for a, a while, but it was time for me to really step up to the plate and be the father and husband that I, I wanted to be. And so having finished, not finished as well as I wanted to coming home, lights and cameras were off, like no training, no daily routines and all that was sort of had stopped. I fell into this deep depression that was so bad for months to where I would even say that that was some of the tougher times in my life because wow. I really had to find out and discover who I was without snowboarding. Like, am I anybody without snowboarding? Like, and I really didn't know, like I lost my athletic identity. I'm like, you know, who am I? But that's the problem with sort of jumping from one thing to another from addiction, right into snowboarding and like hundred miles an hour. I never really had a chance in my life to sort of like stop, slow down, take a look at like, who am I? Like, what impact am I having in my life or with my family? Or, you know, who am I without these things? And that that's a sort of a reckoning for me, for sure. I could only imagine what that was like, but how did you come through that? Was it, you know, self-care, focusing on yourself? Was it your family, your wife, your parents, your friends? Like, how did you, how do you get out of that dark place? It was such a painstaking process because there really wasn't anything. I mean, the easy way would have been to take medication there or drink something because that's how I've always dealt with things in my life or, you know, sort of dive myself into something else uh, in an addictive way. But uh, I knew that that was only going to prolong that, that recovery process for me and learning who I really was. And so it took about two years. And I had even gotten to the point where I started having sort of physical pain in my body. I was getting really bad, like joint pains, uh, muscle fatigue, fatigue, tiredness. I like didn't get out of bed for weeks and I had gone to doctors and they'd done all these blood tests and they're like, you look healthy. Like we don't know what's going on. And I went to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist says, I think you might have something called somatic symptom disorder. And that's where your mind becomes so depressed that it sort of can develop pain as a a way to sort of pull you from um, thinking about that or like stress or anxiety. And so I'm like, that's bogus. Like, there's yeah. no way. Like, <laughs> you're crazy. You're telling me I'm just making this up? Like, I'm telling you, I feel pain. And I, for a couple of months, this is like, it's, I don't believe it. But the more that I, I would go to therapy, the more that I would really focus on my mental health and, you know, getting out every day and exercising, or at least a little bit, um, I started realizing that that was getting a little bit better for me. So, I mean, here we are almost three years after the games, and I'm finally starting to feel like myself again. And, um, really discovering who I am. And that's, it's been a long journey and a process for me, but it, it was 
painstaking, but it was so necessary. Yeah, because I mean, think about you training for the Olympics. I mean, how many hours a week did you work on yourself in preparation for the Olympics? A lot. I mean, every day we would spend at least eight hours because it was four hours on snow, two hours in the gym, and then tuning a board and then, you know, cooking and all that. If you focus on that eight hours a day and it was six days a week. Yeah. So you got to figure that for, for four years. It's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And we, and I told Lindsay, you know, there's a documentary on HBO called going, it's going the for weight of gold that Michael Phelps narrated it. Yeah. It, it was great. Yeah. And it, it really, sad, though. it it's... really does. It sounds right. I'm no athlete, but it sounds like every athlete that competes on this competitive platform feels similar to what you're saying about just that, that, that fog and that depression when it's over, right? Because the cameras go down and, and you have to figure out who you are. And if you don't have the support and the resources in place to do that, that can be really hard for people. And as an athlete, right, you're, you're training and you're tough. And there's that stigma that comes along with mental health, right. Of people think I'm weak in my mind, you know, they think I'm in a week and I'm weak in other places. And that's obviously not the truth, but there's that stigma around it. So to speak up and say, I am depressed and I am having a lot of head issues and I, I need help. That takes a lot for people. Yeah. During, during that depression, did you use again? Did you think about using? What was that like? I thought about it plenty, um, quite a bit, actually, um, more than I had in the years prior to that. But I knew I, I, like, that's not an option for me. Um, Good for you. Luckily, the more years that I've had under my belt, the more I think the guilt of doing something like that prevents you from doing it. Um, cause if this was like, you know, a couple of months after I'd be like, oh, screw it, you know, but right. I think I know how long I've had in my recovery that if I were to throw that all away, it would almost just destroy me and the people around me. So I sort of know that that's not an option, which is good because it sort of works. That's my great. But I thought about that many times and, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's an ongoing battle, but, uh, I, I think that'll, that'll never go away. Having those thoughts pop back into my head to be able to reach for something to sort of make whatever I'm feeling uh, go away at that moment in that time. That's what Adam says a lot of times too. Cause I always ask like, you know, do you think about it? And he's like, yeah, I think about it all the time, but he's like, I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to go through that again. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I don't ever want to detox again. I don't want to do that again. Yeah. I think that's the number one reason why I don't, I don't use <laughs> is detox. The detox. It is the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I feel you on the fact that like you can sobriety, you almost carry around like this championship belt, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have this superpower that no one really only sober people can understand it. And you don't want to give it back because it feels like you'll never get it again. If you give it, if you give it back. So I, I, I feel the same way. It's just my recovery process now is, that relapse isn't a part of my recovery and it's just not an option, right? I got to find, there's plenty of ice cream in the world that is an option for me before a drink or, you know, a drug is. So, sugar. Oh, I love sugar. Love sugar. Yeah. Sugar's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a, go, it's an okay go-to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a better alternative. Yeah. For sure. like, what's your secret to recovery? It's just Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. 
And so, coffee. Do you drink a lot of coffee? Yes, I drink a lot in the morning. I drink a lot yeah. because you know when I got back from rehab, I was like, oh well, I'm a sober person. I have to go to AA meetings. I definitely have to be a coffee drinker, right? Everybody in AA. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I thought about smoking cigarettes too. I never got to it, but I was like, if I'm going to be full recovery, I might as well smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Look the part. Yeah. Oh God. Exactly. At least you don't. Smoke. But yes, don't talk to me in the morning until I have my coffee. Lindsay wakes up and it's like, she's been up for five hours and yeah, I, yeah. I roll out of bed. I got to stretch out. Oh my and gosh. then like I get straight to the fridge and I have my, it's, it's just this iced coffee. I drink it black and I just, I take a shot of it and I'm ready to speak. I'm like, okay. He, he, he what takes do you got like 45 minutes to tie his shoelaces. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> like going all over the place in the morning. Yeah, I'm more like you, Lindsay. I'm up in the morning early. Once, once I'm up, I'm up. Like, so let's go game on. Let's get the day at night. I don't like the night. I'm tired at the end of the day. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. So, so you, so you announced your retirement from the Paralympic sports uh, in September, right? Of 2020. Yes. How did that feel? It, it was, uh, it felt good. I, I gotta say, cause at that point I had really come to terms with what I really wanted to do. And that, that was a decision that I wanted to make. And it wasn't a decision that was made for me. That's why I didn't do it right away. Like right after the games, I didn't retire and say, this is what I'm doing because I didn't know like if right. I was going to come back and I didn't want to retire and then come back a couple of years later or whatever and be one of those, one of those people. So I wanted to make sure that it was for certain, for certain. And when I was going through all of that depression, I wanted to be clear headed and clear minded and be in a position where when I announced that, that I was proud of that and that I was proud of my career and what I accomplished during that time and proud of where I'm going with my life moving forward. And I think that it, that was the right timing for me. So I was happy. Yeah. That's awesome. It's and it's al- nice. It's you closing. got to, yeah, you get to close, you get to do it. Yeah. Right. Nobody yes. else did it for you and you get to decide that what's next in your life and, and your next journeys. So what is next? So what's, what's going on now? Uh, so now I've really been putting a lot of focus into my, my business, into my company, which is altered grain design. And I do a lot of custom built-ins, cabinetry, millwork, um, a lot of anything that has to do with woodworking, um, which is something that I did do prior to my snowboarding. Uh, I learned all self-taught probably about 10 or 11 years ago, actually longer than that now. And um, that's really what saved me from my addiction, which I didn't include in the story is when I got out of rehab, that was the first thing that I found was, was woodworking. Um, I had made a doghouse for my dog at the time and sort of fell in love with the craft. And so I put all that away for all these years while I was competing. And I was like, you know, what am I going to do now? And well, hey, I've got this ability to work with my hands and I love doing it. Why not have that as my as my job, as my profession? And so I started off doing that, you know, um, probably about it's been about a year and a half, two years now. And it was really, really tough. Actually, it's still tough, but uh, it was really extremely tough in the beginning to sort of develop that uh, client base. Um, and sort of get my name back out there and, uh, you know, charge what I feel that I, my work is worth. And I now almost two years later, I feel like I'm finally in a groove where I'm really working great with my company and my business. And I've got like clients for days. I'm backed up for four or five months. So the demand is there. And I'm just really trying to match that with help with employees. I've got a, um, apprentice that's been on staff with me and I've been teaching him a lot of craft and it's been amazing. And so I go to work every day. I love what I do. Although sometimes I'm exhausted because I feel like I wear so many different hats within the company, like designing and quoting, measuring, you know, doing the build work. So it's, it's hard, but it's very gratifying and it sort of brings me down and grounds me in a way where I feel like I'm just happy with who I am. 
Yeah. And we were, we were show prepping last night and Lindsay mentioned that he works with wood. He's a wood, he's a woodworker. He does woodwork. And I was like, just show me his Instagram. Like, let me, let me see it. And it's, you're a designer, man. You like the things that you design are, are amazing. And I know you designed a table for a charity auction. It was, it's and it amazing. went for like $5,000. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. no, but all your stuff. And I love furniture. Um, all, all your stuff is amazing. And you're doing baseball bats now. Yeah, I did some baseball bats. Obviously, I was coaching my son's baseball team, and I uh, thought, what the heck? I've got the lathe for it. Let me try and make some baseball bats. So I made. We we want to buy one. We want you to sign it, and we're gonna oh, put nice. it. We're gonna put it right here in the uh, Get Found Recovery Studio. I got you. I got you. I will make you a baseball bat. Yes, awesome. I will glad gladly do that. Yeah, yeah, we would love it too. And our we'll put it right right behind us. And it, you can swing a bat too, by the way. Do you play softball or baseball or anything? Uh, I love the sport. Uh, I played growing up quite a bit. It's funny after coaching him for a while, um, I was like, I want to get back into playing. And I signed up for an adult softball league. First game I go out there and I roll my ankle on the bag and I was in a boot for probably like eight months, but I I couldn't like my ankle is messed up for for a really long time. And so my wife always makes me, she's like, you're not the same athlete you used to be. You're getting older now or whatever. I'm like, there's some truth to that. I'm telling you, like I wake up in the morning, I feel like I'm just not the same, but it's part of aging. Yeah, I feel that way. I'm I'm not a competitive athlete, but I still play soccer. And so you break your foot every three I, years. I've broken my foot numerous times. And he's like, you're done. You're done. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. no, I'm not done yet. Oh, we played neighborhood kickball uh, not too long ago. And I went back for a pop fly and I pulled my hamstring. I'm just like, I, I don't have it anymore. It's so I, I too retired from, from, <laughs> from, from sports. Let me ask you this because this always, I think this is the coolest thing. And I see it all the time on Instagram. Um, an, an adult with uh, a prosthetic uh, and we're talking to Mike Shea, a former Paralympian in snowboarding and, and uh, silver medalist and world champion. And I see on Instagram all the time um, adults with kids who also have their foot or ankle leg amputated and they see each other for the first time. And it's it's almost like the kid like is like, oh, my God, I'm not the only person. Have you had the opportunity to go to a children's hospital or do it, do anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. During my, uh, you know, uh, career as a, as a snowboarder, we did a lot of uh, work like that with uh, different organizations and nonprofits and actually that's probably one of the, the most joyful things that you can do as an amputee is see the look on another kid's face, especially when, you know, or maybe they're congenital, they were born with that or whatever it may be when they don't see a lot of people with the same thing that they have at that young impressionable age, they're sort of like, well, am I the outcast? So right. for them to see, like you said, to see somebody that, Oh, this, somebody has this and Oh, and they can do all this. Like uh, it's, it brings so much joy to me to be able to do that for sure. Yeah, I th- I don't think there's a video where I can't start welling welling up oh, when no. you see that when you see that happen. It's 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 really cool. Yes, we you know our whole the whole point of get found recovery is to talk about recovery, and I I think you have hit on so much recovery that yeah, you have so many done in your entire life, and you're still young, even though you think you're old. You're young, right? <laughs> so what is what does life look like for you going forward? Right? Does it I would assume, I mean, your story is beyond inspirational, right? Every aspect of it. 
I, you know, I'm so happy you told it to us today so we can get it out there. But do you plan on continuing that piece, right? To be an inspiration for young kids, young amputee kids, right? And seeing this awesome world champion snowboarder coming up and saying, I'm just like you and you can do all of these amazing things. Is that, is that in your plan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely something that I will continue to do. And uh, I think that's part of um, having a legacy is being able to pass down the things that you've learned or the things that you've gone through with other people, because that's the, that's the teaching moment that really helps, you know, new generations or younger kids or people who are going through the same thing that you went through. I know when I went through my stuff, I seek that from other people. So I know that I want to be that person for somebody. And so whether it's, uh, through a company called One Revolution, which we speak at elementary schools and middle schools. Um, that has been a tremendous thing for a lot of kids in our community. And it's, you know, I enjoy it too. Um, let's be real. It's not just for them. I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that as well. Um, but, you know, obviously the pandemic, so it's it's not easy to be able to do that. But uh, I for sure plan on continuing to do that and doing outreach programs and working with nonprofits as much as I possibly can. Yeah, it's like when does the book deal happen and when does your movie come out? Because it's <laughs> it's a it's an incredible story, man. We appreciate you sharing it with us. You know, towards the end, we always ask everybody, uh, all of our guests, you know, somebody who's going through. I don't know if I could even say similar. It's you've your road is or, so they're all different, but someone who's in recovery or trying to get into recovery. What kind of advice do you have for them? Oh, man, that's such a loaded question, because there's so much, I think, to that question. Um, but I, I think some if someone's in recovery, I feel like that the most important thing that I heard and the most thing that had the most impact on me was uh, pay attention to your environment, uh, because I think that's the people around us is what make us who we are. And I don't I think that when I realized that in my recovery is when I really realized that's part of my was part of my problem. And so if you're going through addiction or you're, you know, out of rehab fresh and you're trying to maintain some sobriety, take a look at the people around you and your environment and make sure that that's set up in a positive way to that you can set up yourself up, set yourself up for success. I think that's probably the main thing that I would touch on. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a ton of support, family support um, through everything and do today, I, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've been so grateful there because a lot of people don't have that you know, um, don't have that family support that I've had. So um, grateful, grateful for that 100% because without it, I don't know that I would be, be here today, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, there's some people who think recovery is uh, simply internal, just get over it, get on with it, keep your head down when you see something you don't like, but there's a lot of external things that we have to do in recovery to make sure that we're safe and um, so that we can continue on in our, our sobriety. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was so good to see you. Thank you. It was Likewise. awesome. Yeah, so so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And honestly, what you guys are doing is awesome with the podcast and getting the word out there and spreading awareness. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I'll be waiting yeah. for that baseball bat. <laughs> I got you. I got you. It cuts so deep and stitches back every broken that you've ever had and all the memories that you can't escape you can't hide it on your face i'll be the found rest so tightly on your soul pulls you up won't let you go
every breath you try to breathe alone I'll be beside you so you know I'll be the fire